Okay, welcome back. So this is part two uh, of two episodes that we're putting out this week. Uh, and if you did not listen to the, the previous episode, go back and listen to it, or episode, podcast, I don't know what you call it, but whatever, go listen to it. Um, part of the pains and privileges of our new Southern ga- Sunday gathering meeting spaces, we're still working out some technical uh, issues. And so we did not get a recording, but it gave me an opportunity to revisit uh, some of our some of our notes and conversations from our teaching this past weekend and hopefully dive deeper. So uh, one, I hope it's useful to those of you who were there on Sunday and just want that refresher, want to dive a little bit deeper. I'm sure I'm hitting things that I maybe have forgotten or missed or was not led to teach or whatever. Uh, But I also hope it's helpful for those of you who weren't able to be there just to keep up with us in the story of Matthew. And so the the last uh, part one was was setting the stage for where we are in Matthew. So if you are new to Anthem, new to studying the book of Matthew, or we're not there or whatever, please go back and listen to that. It's really helpful because we take a look at the historical narrative perspective of what's happening in uh, the lead up to the book of Matthew. We look at the story of God and his people, uh, and we look at to the culture of the day that Jesus was born into to really help us understand why Jesus teaches and does the things he does. And so that's really useful. Go back and listen to it. And this here, part two, is we're going to be looking at our text that we had this week, which is Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And so if you're able, actually get out your Bible. If you're driving or something like that, listening to that, don't get out your Bible. That'd be dangerous. But if you're sitting or whatever, having a cup of coffee, get out your Bible, Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at these six verses here at the beginning. Now, these couple of verses in the Sermon on the Mount is really interesting because it's often used by people who don't know Jesus to tell people that do know Jesus what they're doing wrong. Or it's used by people who go into defensive mode and don't want people looking and quote-unquote judging their life. It's a, pas- it's a passage that's often misunderstood and misinterpreted. And so far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching about life in the kingdom of God. He's talked about how to get in, how to understand the law or what we would consider the Old Testament, how to go deeper than outward rule keeping, and how to engage heart change in the kingdom. So up to this point, Jesus has been working very hard to make sure that everyone hearing him knows that life in the kingdom is different than life outside of it. And so he'll use phrases like, you've heard it said, but I say, or blessed are the poor in spirit, or those who mourn, or the meek, or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, or the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, whatever. He'll say things like, do not be anxious about your life. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And, and basically what he's telling us is, is that the way we're used to living doesn't work anymore now that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We have different value systems, different worldviews, different ways to be satisfied and finding value and joy and peace. And and in chapter 7, he shifts gears a little bit as the sermon continues. Now, it's hard to tell because we don't quite know 
who's all in the audience. We know his disciples are there, and we know the crowd is there. And so in the crowd uh, that's following Jesus might be uh, pagans or people who are looking to get a healing or people are just looking to hear the new hot rabbi coming out of Nazareth teaching and proclaiming all these wild things. Or it might be, like we see in Matthew chapter 3, some of the religious elite checking out this new guy teaching controversial things. And so we don't know exactly, because they don't come out right and say it, but it appears there may be people in the crowd that Jesus is specifically calling out. And he doesn't specifically identify the Pharisees in this moment, but the language he uses is very similar to, uh, to other places in Matthew when he confronts them. And so Jesus deals with this issue of judging other people, and we might even see a tonal change from the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's just take a moment, actually, and pray. Father, you are so good to us. Thank you for uh, the story of your son, Jesus, accounted in the Gospel of Matthew. Thank you for what you have to teach us today. Thank you for what you're doing in our community at Anthem. And I just pray even in these moments as I'm revisiting some notes and as this I'm literally talking to a computer, unknowing who's actually on the other end, uh, God, I just ask that you'd help me teach and even preach in a way that is faithful and honoring to you and to the text. And God, would we rally around uh, this kingdom life that you are demonstrating in the book of Matthew and seek to embody it in our lives. And so we to that end, desperately need the help of your spirit. And so, God, would you cause us to be more sensitive to what you're doing? And uh, we just are ever um, aware of our need for your grace that comes through Jesus. And so we're thankful. We love you. Help us understand the text we have for today. Amen. Amen. So, Matthew 7, a very misinterpreted and misunderstood text. Uh, but to, do, to help understand a little bit, I want to go backwards in Matthew just a little bit to when Jesus was teaching the disciples and the crowds how to pray. And he finishes this kind of uh, this teaching on how to pray with, for if you forgive others their trespasses in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So very similar type of language here. A, a if you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, then this will happen. And, and so what Jesus is doing here, the basic idea of these passages are, is that God expects us, kingdom citizens, to treat others with the same grace that has been used on us. And so fast forward to chapter 7, verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. 
God expects us to treat others with the same grace that has been used on us. Anything else is hypocritical. This is a call to approach one another differently. And the tendency of the day was to follow the lead of the Pharisees. And what the Pharisees' tendency was to use external obedience to the law and all the extra laws that they create to judge the righteousness of the people of Israel. And Jesus' instruction is, is when you're in a community of people seeking to live out the kingdom of God, don't make a point to judge them beyond your own journey. Now, a couple of things need to be said about these few verses here. This is not an instruction not to judge. Okay, that's really important. Jesus is not teaching us, don't judge at all. It's an instruction not to judge inappropriately. Okay, the second thing we need to understand is this has nothing to do with the legal system. So Jesus is talking about life in the kingdom community. Society still has its responsibilities. So when you think uh, judged according to external laws of society or culture or the government or whatever that still stands, we're talking about life in the kingdom community. Third, this is not an opportunity for people who want to live however they want to tell you that, hey, bro, don't judge me. That's not what this is here at all. What it is, is Jesus teaching Christ followers, other disciples, how to appropriately judge compassionately their brothers and sisters. Right, so this is not an instruction not to judge, but in fact, he is teaching us how to judge those in the family of God. And he has a little bit of a process here that we can find in his verses. And the first in Jesus's process is to realize your own blind spots and self-unawareness. Whatever measure you use to judge will be judged against you. So make sure your heart is right before you judge somebody else's actions. When you judge, what is the measuring cup that you are using to judge another person? Realize your own blind spots and self-unawareness, right? The imagery here is supposed to be absurd and silly that someone having a huge log in their eye would try to attend the speck of someone else's. But often that happens because we do not realize our own sinfulness, blind spots, or self-unawareness. I just have to say, anecdotally, most of the people I talk to or counsel or whatever, uh, the biggest problem people have generally at large, at least in inventory that I'm talking to, is that they are very self-unaware. They don't know how they, how they come off. They don't know what's really inside their heart. And so the way they act is coming from a total blind spot or self-awareness of, of what's happening in their heart. And Jesus is calling us to be more self-aware. One of the big things that Jesus encourages is self-examination and being poor in spirit. It's hard to be poor in spirit and a judge of other people. Typically, those that are poor in spirit have a hard time seeing past their own brokenness to even cast judgment on another person. It's also hard to cast judgment when you're merciful. Blessed are the merciful. You typically see the struggle, know the struggle, long for the person to find wholeness and healing rather than simply casting judgment. It's a whole different approach. The measuring cup of grace makes the concept of judgment very difficult. If you are poor in spirit, you know that you require immense grace. And if you require immense grace, then you know others do as well. And the measuring cup is a heaping serving of grace. 
So his first process here is realize your own blind spots and self-unawareness. The second is to deal with your false morality and fake righteousness. For the improper judgment, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log in your own eye. Jesus is telling his listeners they haven't quite figured out the whole poor in spirit thing yet. And the hard part is we typically see and we typically view our sin as far less dramatic or less significant than the sin of others around us. Well, blessed in the spirit for those of the kingdom of heaven. Those that are poor in spirit see that they need to be the first to repent and experience the fullness of God's grace. A little while ago, uh, the, all the pastor and elders of, of our three Anthem churches, Anthem Camarillo, Thousand Oaks, and Ventura, were praying together and, and just sort of having a time of ministry and, and trying to hear from the Lord and, and pray together. And I think we're around a, a backyard fire pit or something like that. And in the prayer time, someone brought up this, this word for us as elders that we should be the lead repenters of our church, that as, as the leaders that God has entrusted to serve these anthem churches, we need to be the first to repent and lead the way in a lifestyle of repentance and faith. And I'm not saying we do it perfectly all the time by any stretch, but it's, it's one of those things we are striving for as a team leading this church. Those that are poor in spirit see that they need to be the first to repent and experience the fullness of God's grace. We need to deal with our false morality and fake righteousness. The log is really a matter of perspective. Right? Until your own sin is bigger than the sin of others, you have not arrived at being poor in spirit. Paul has something to say as he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he very much could have uh, put a period there and stopped and moved on or whatever. But instead, he puts a comma and he says, Of whom I am the foremost. Now, I have a feeling Paul understood that theologically he was not the foremost sinner. There might have been literal worst sinners. Like, yeah, he was a pretty wicked guy, but do you think Paul was claiming to somehow be the worst sinner of all time, like it was a contest or something? No, I don't think so. Was he saying that it's a trustworthy saying that to all of us that Jesus came to save sinners of I'm whom the foremost? It's just posture different. Is it possible that the poor in spirit posture that we all need to take and, and see ourselves is, is the foremost sinner whom Christ came to save? If you spend all your time thinking about how, how bad other people are, how much they've messed up, you're not really going to grow in Christ-likeness. And Jesus' command is to take the log out of your own eye. So first... We need to realize our own blind spots and self-unawareness. We can't walk into an accountability situation or relational situation unaware of our, of our own uh, situation in life or heart posture. We need to self-examine. The second is to deal with it. Deal with our false morality and fake righteousness that we try to put about. I mean, think about the image. I mean, I... Think about the absurd image of someone with a huge log in their eye trying to attend to the speck in someone else's. It's not only impossible, but it's quite silly. Take the log out of your own eye. Okay, and the third in his process here is to experience true repentance 
so that we can compassionately help our brothers and sisters. First, take the log out so that you can see clearly to help your brother. A pastor friend of ours says, we must see ourselves clearly so that we can see each other rightly. Now we get into the kind of the controversial part of this message. So maybe we can get on board with the kind of deal with yourself before you invade other people's lives. And sometimes we just leave it at that. But the reality of what Jesus is saying is he's saying Christians should judge each other. Apply grace, live in repentance, be poor in spirit, and help your brothers and sisters see when they are missing it. See when they're missing the kingdom. We deal with ourselves, live in grace, live in repentance, be poor in spirit, so that we can compassionately help our brothers and sisters do the same. Paul writes to the Corinthians about how to deal with unrepentant brothers and sisters in the church, and in that section... 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. The reality of this kingdom community is that there's a mutual expectation that we are all striving for the same goals. Right? We're all trying to be more Christ-like. And it's an act of compassion when in humility, grace, poor in spirit, someone helps you see where you're missing it and helps you live more like Jesus. When you say yes to Jesus, you join a family of people who have also said yes to Jesus. When you baptized, you are baptized into his family. We're not baptized into a vacuum or obscurity. We're baptized into a family, into a community. This means, as a believer, you have invited judgment into your life. No, nobody likes to be judged, right? But that doesn't change the fact that we need judgment in our life. My hardest moments are not when I decide to do something different, change the trajectory or course of my life necessarily. My hardest moments is when I let other people into that process. So for example, if I've decided to lose weight or eat better or something like that, that's not necessarily a hard moment for me. That's not, there's no steep accountability there. I'm just trying to say, well, I'm going to eat you know, one less burger a week or something like that. My hardest moment is when I tell my wife, Sherry, that I want to lose weight or eat better. And, and not that she's like, you know, she's, never, she's so gracious. She's never been mean to me like this, but I, I have invited her judgment into my life. And so even if she doesn't say it, I can feel when we're in the kitchen and I, and I go for my like fifth or sixth piece of pizza or something like that. And I can just hear and imagine her saying, like, weren't you trying to lose, lose a few pounds? What are you doing? Now, she, she would never say that. <laughs> and I know if she did, it would be, she'd mean nothing by it and be perfectly innocent, not judgmental. But even so, I have invited her into my life in a way that could at times come into conflict with my own desires and I would feel judged. I still feel like I should be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want. But the reality is, is I've let someone in on my goal and they're going to help me get there. That's the hard part about the body of Christ. We've committed ourselves to a life of mutual accountability. We're telling other people with our baptism that we are baptized into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, that we are striving for the same goals of being more Christ-like, 
and trying to live as best as we can reflecting this kingdom to which we've been brought into. We have to do this together, right? This, this whole community of believers, one of the reasons we walk in community is so we can help each other, spur each other on to love and good works, Hebrews tells us. That's why we don't neglect meeting together. Call it uh, mutual sanctification, Communal sanctification. I don't know if that's a, that's a thing or not, but that's what we're doing. We're helping each other live more and more like Jesus. And so we invite the judgment of those brothers and sisters in our life so that at the end of the day, we can be a little bit more like Jesus. If we truly want to accomplish the goal of if his kingdom coming, his will be done, we need the eyes of the other brothers and sisters in our body on our life. And vice versa. The hard part is having humility to receive somebody's teaching, correction, rebuke, or training. The bottom line Jesus is getting at here is he wants us to judge with compassion and love for one another, not out of condemnation. Okay, do you guys get that? Jesus is not telling us not to judge each other, but he's telling us to judge each other with compassion, all having the same end goal in mind. We're all striving by the power of the Spirit to be more and more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. We need each other to do that, and sometimes that might mean encouragement from the body, and sometimes that may take a little correction or training. Jesus is telling us here, we do that with compassion and love, not condemnation. Jesus teaches us to confront the sin of others only after we have confronted the sin in ourselves. And he teaches us to confront the sin of others when we are genuinely concerned for the well-being of one another. And with the goal of restoring them, not condemning them. And in an attitude of genuine, other-centered, God-glorifying gentleness and humility and love. What I love about this passage is that Jesus does not anticipate the Christian community will be perfect. In fact, he knows it's going to get messy and there will be sin and mistakes and errors and he wants us to deal with it. Right, And so much so that other writers in the New Testament, like Paul to the church in Galatians in, in chapter 6 says, Brothers, if any of you is caught in any transgression, those of you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Ooh, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter five, for for through by this time you ought to for though by this time you ought to be teachers and you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So often we have examples of the writers of the New Testament correcting us as readers, but also instruction to correct each other as brothers and sisters. We're to deal with it, but not judgmentally or hypocritically, but in a manner which is brotherly. And compassionate. This idea of helping others with a speck is an act of compassion, not condemnation. The imagery here connotates that there would be great damage that can come from attending to specks while retaining logs. We must be careful to act as neither judge nor hypocrite, but a brother. So kind of close out a little bit of this, this teaching on the, the six verses here, I want to turn to Colossians chapter 3. 
In Colossians 3, verse 12, Paul, as an encouragement to the church of Colossae, says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So we are to judge each other compassionately, brotherly, with the goal of seeing them restored and living more like Jesus tomorrow than they did today than they did yesterday. The purpose of taking the log out of your own eye and then taking out the speck of your brothers is mutual encouragement. We're not here to tear one another down. If our goal is not to build up a brother, what are we doing? When you look at judgment and discipline in the church throughout the Bible, it comes after continuous efforts to draw people into the glorious goodness of King Jesus and always, always with the goal of glorious restoration in the body. In Christ, welcome judgment and long for the day to become more like Christ. In Christ, we can have the humility to say, I don't always have the right answer. I don't always do the right thing. In Christ, we can have the the grace to know that we were once sinners and Christ overcame that to bring us into his family. And in Christ, we can have the boldness to repent, to deal with our own sin, to compassionately help our brothers and sisters and keep them accountable and keep them striving for the goal and to continually come back to this family, never pulling away. Because we know it is in the context of community that we are being grown. And so this past weekend, we had a, we had a, a very vibrant response time. And, uh, and so what I want to do is just maybe if you weren't there, help, help send you into a time of response and maybe prayer or, or worship on your own or whatever. And the three things we kind of circled the wagons on in terms of our response is, is repentance, first and foremost. And maybe you need to repent for, for judging others unfairly or, or sinfully. Or maybe repent of your own sin itself right now. And the the second response that we might have after encountering this text is to be bold. It takes boldness to not only fight your own sin, but to compassionately help others fight their sin. And the third response is to commit. The reality is spiritual growth happens in community. It does not happen in isolation. And so for some of you, you might be thinking, oh, shoot, I got to do all three of those. And maybe that's okay. So if you need to repent, take a few moments and and repent. Maybe call someone and and, and confess or whatever. But if nothing else, spend a few moments in prayer, repenting of, of judging others unfairly or repenting of your own sin. And ask the Lord for boldness. It takes a lot of courage and boldness to fight sin in our life. And even more so to compassionately help other people do it. And third... Figure out what it looks like to commit to a community. If you're listening to this and you, and you don't have a church community, please find one near you. You cannot do this Christian life by simply listening to good worship albums and podcasts. Commit to a life and community. If you are in community, I would challenge you to figure out what it looks like to be committed to that community. 
Maybe it's to be more present. Maybe it's to be more vulnerable. Maybe it's to be more bold and and asking others to keep you accountable and helping others be accountable themselves. But whatever it is, process through what that response looks like. So I want to pray for you um, and just pray a blessing over you as we try to kind of let this uh, change and penetrate our hearts. Father, we're, we're so thankful for, for you, your word, and all you have to say. We trust that you are at work, even in this podcast, uh, changing uh, the hearts uh, of anyone who would listen to be, to be more in love with you, to worship you more, to, to repent more, to be bold more, to really pursue this life you have for us. And, and so I just simply ask Uh, Just that prayer for boldness the new church prays in the book of Acts, that you'd give us boldness as a church to fight our own sin, to compassionately help others, boldness to commit to a church body, even though we may have been hurt by a church in the past, and a boldness to repent so that we can help, compassionately help our brothers and sisters live more and more like you, Jesus. So we're thankful for your Holy Spirit, which enables us and empowers us and equips us to live this life. And we're thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, dying a death on the cross, defeating death, so that we could have life in your kingdom. Amen.